We come to the end. Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. I'll give you a moment to find it. Sorry, pastor joke. Wake up. Mario just found it. All right. Let's give our attention now to the reading, the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it, preserving it for us that we might have it even today. It's been read in a language that we understand. Father, we need help. We need help for more than just physical understanding. We need spiritual understanding. Open our eyes. Open our eyes, O God, by your spirit. 
that we may behold wondrous things. Would you teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us, make us more like Jesus. Father, encourage us. Give us grace that we might stand. Lord, help your people that they might be able to endure. May they know that this word was written for them. Father, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you had your eye on current events, you know that a lot happened in the world this week, as it does almost every week, right? But there was one notable news story that kind of flew under the radar, largely overshadowed by everything else, maybe one story in particular, that was going on. And it was the news that a woman named Baronel Stutzman had finally ended her long and arduous legal journey. You see, almost a decade ago, a lawsuit was brought against Mrs. Stutzman and her shop, Arlene's Flowers. Why? Because she refused to design flower arrangements for her dear friend, Rob, for Rob's marriage to another man. She believed, and this is in her own words, and I'm going to quote what she said. I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible to be the word of God. She goes on to say, that word makes it clear that he designed marriage to be only the union of one man and one woman. I could not take the artistic talents God himself gave me and use them to contradict and dishonor his word. If you follow this story, Mrs. Stutzman didn't win her legal battle. In fact, she finally reached a settlement. She paid, and she's retiring. She's decided to sell her shop to her employees. But if you watch the video released this week by Alliance Defending Freedom of her reading this public letter, you'll soon realize that she has indeed won. She's won the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ, her Lord. Megan sent the video to me this week, and I was moved to tears. You're not surprised by that. I was moved to tears as I watched this 77-year-old woman warmly thank all those who stood by her side, as well as she gently told those who had persecuted her that she would continue to pray for them. In fact, the last words of her video, she, <laughs> she offered her best wishes to her old friend, Rob, who had brought the lawsuit, the one who started the persecution, the one whom she refused to serve. You see, Baronel Stutzman illustrates, in part, the life to which each and every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus, including you and I, has been called to in this life. 
As we've studied the book of Revelation together over the past couple of years, we've come to realize that the words of Jesus to his disciples back in John 16.33 are indeed true. This is what he said. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If ever there were a message that the church needs to hear today, that that I need to hear, that you need to hear, if ever there's a message that we need to be reminded of, it's this. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. As the book of Revelation ends here in chapter 22, and as we come to our 40th, believe it or not, and final sermon in the book of Revelation, we're faced with what appears to be somewhat disconnected and disjointed sayings. Sayings of an angel, sayings of the apostle John, and sayings of Jesus himself. But what I I hope to demonstrate for you this morning is that there is an important common thread running through these verses that not only hold the verses together, but a common thread that hold us together, that hold us together as we live out our calling to endure all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so what is that thread? What is that thread? That thread is authority. Authority. And it's authority manifested first in the authority of God's word. The authority of God's word. And second, in the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So if you're taking notes, and I know many of you do, if you're taking notes this morning, I'll give those again. These two points are going to make up our outline. First, the authoritative word. The authoritative word. Second, the authoritative Christ. The authoritative Christ. So we encounter the authority of God's word in verses 6 through 9. 6 through 9, as we're directed to respond to it in three ways. First, look at verse 6. We are directed to trust God's word. We're directed to trust God's word. The angel who has guided John on his journey through these staggering visions, which we've, excuse me, which he has received and we've studied, this angel turns to him and says these words, not just the few words from the last chapter, but all of these words are trustworthy and true. All of these words, they're trustworthy and they are true. You see, everything that John has heard from the very beginning, all that John has seen, remember Revelation is a picture book, all these things that John has seen, all of it is true and it's trustworthy. All of it is going to come to pass. What does that mean? It means that the suffering that he's been told about is going to happen. But it also means that the deliverance is going to happen too. This means that sin will indeed increase and hostility against the church will rage. But eternal triumph and heavenly glory will surely be enjoyed too. 
This testimony is not new. This testimony about God's word being true and trustworthy is not new. This wouldn't have been a surprise to John, right? No, it's absolutely consistent with the whole of the Bible and all of the Bible's teaching about itself. Because the Bible is God's own word. It's trustworthy because it comes from God. It's breathed out by God. It comes from him. A good passage for you to commit to memory, if you haven't already, is Proverbs 30, verse 5. You can look there if you would like. I'll read it for you. Every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Surely that was on the mind of the apostle John, who is in prison on the island of Patmos, put there by the emperor Domitian, suffering for his faith as an old man, finding refuge in the Lord, having the Lord Jesus Christ send the angel to show these visions to him, telling him, this is the word of God. It is trustworthy and true. He knows this is going to be true. He's been given a message to send to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this message is for you. I've said this from the very beginning. Revelation is for you. It's trustworthy and true. Second, in verse 7, we are directed to keep God's word, to keep God's word. Here it appears that Jesus breaks in now. He breaks in to declare that he's coming soon, a, a phrase that actually appears three times in this passage, and we'll look a little bit closer at that later. And because he's coming soon, those who receive and keep its words are indeed blessed. So there are these blessings, these beatitudes throughout the book of Revelation, and here's one of those. Blessed are those who keep these words. This is a reminder that this book is not for the theological elite. It's not just for them. It's for you. It's not just for the end times code-breaking enthusiasts. It's for you. This book is for all of God's people, for all time. It's to be read. It's to be cherished. It's to be preached. It's to be taught. It's to help us discern what is evil in this age. And it's to encourage us that faithfulness to Jesus, faithfulness to him is more rewarding than compromise with evil. Revelation is meant to give us light. It's meant to transmit a message of hope to those of us who live behind enemy lines. I was reminded this week of the French resistance fighters during World War II. During the, the four years of Nazi occupation, many of the people had just started cooperating with the enemy. They had just kind of started going with the flow. But small bands of brave fighters, small bands of them, waged continuous guerrilla warfare. They did things like sabotage rail lines, raided military bases, and they gave information to the Allied forces. And they just couldn't wait for the Allied forces to get there. The resistance had no idea when the British and the American forces were going to show up. When were they going to land on the shores? When were they going to parachute into their fields? But 
they had been receiving coded information to anticipate the event. In fact, on June 1st, 1944, the BBC broadcast the first kind of coded secret message hidden in its normal programming. And this is what it said. Stand by, we're coming soon. Stand by, we're coming soon. You see, Jesus has likewise transmitted to his church. Not in a secret code, right? This isn't a code book. He's telling us plainly, I'm coming soon. (laughs) I'm coming to right all these wrongs. I'm coming. We're here. We're behind enemy lines. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And this is what's going to happen. I'm coming to rescue you. We must keep hold of that hope by keeping hold of God's word. Third, and lastly here under the authoritative word in verses eight and nine, we're directed how to respond to God's word, especially when we trust it and keep it. After all that John has seen and heard, especially at the end, you can't blame him for his response, can you? In fact, we've seen this before. What he does here is the same thing we saw him do back in chapter 19, verse 10. He just falls down and starts to worship the angel. And the angel is actually right to rebuke John, not for worshiping. He's not rebuking him because he's, his response is to worship. He's rebuking him for worshiping him, right? I find this comforting. Anyone else find this comforting? I mean, here's John. He's an apostle, right? And he's worshiping an angel. He's, he's doing it wrong, so to say. Like, that's comforting to see that, right? It's helpful. It's instructive, right? Because I get rebuked a lot, right? The Lord corrects me. I need to be corrected. None of you do, though, right? So it's, it's comforting to see this, that we're all in need of grace. So here we see even that. But it's also comforting because this is what the Word of God does in us. It's what it should do in us. It should lead us to worship right? The word of God should stir within us a desire to worship. When we have a right view of God, right? When we have a right view of God's word, that it is trustworthy and true. And then when we take up the call to keep it and we take it seriously and we read it and we study it and we meditate upon it and we memorize it and we live according to it, we're going to be roused to worship God. Why? Because we're actually going to know him. We're not just going to know about him because somebody told us about him, whether rightly or wrongly. We're going to know him. We're going to know his ways. And we're going to hope in him. So I have to tell you this. Only God's word is truly authoritative. Only God's word truly leads us to truly worship him. We really believe that here at the Granville Chapel. We really believe that. Notice that God gets the first and last word in our worship services. From the call to worship to the benediction. The announcements come before. From the call to worship to the benediction. It's from scripture. That's why we preach expositional sermons from God's word. Even topical series are expositional in nature. As elders, even I as your pastor, we long to see, as Jesus himself taught in Matthew 7, I long to see, the elders long to see, you build your house on the firm foundation of God's word. 
Anything else, as Jesus taught, is nothing more than sinking sand. Anything else is sinking sand. You must build your house on the firm foundation of God's word. Build your house on anything else. Jesus says your life will become ruin. Trust God's word. Keep God's word. So the common thread of this passage is authority. We see it in God's word in verses six through nine. And now we come to see it in the person and work of Jesus in verses 10 through 20. And that's our second point this morning, the authoritative Christ. And before I go on and show you the three ways we see the authority of Jesus from these verses, I, I want to take a moment and just point out something up front. As a lifelong avid endorsement, I've never been much of an athlete. I know that's shocking to you. I've not played on a lot of sports teams beyond sixth grade. So I've never been privy to those rousing pregame speeches that get teams all fired up. I've seen them on TV. Um, I've never had that personal like hype song uh, to blare on my headphones before taking the field. I know you think that's what we're doing back there before the service, right? I know you think that we're back there, elders are taking turns, you know, going up there and saying, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do today. That doesn't happen. Um, although I have wondered what it'd be like for pastors to have walk-up songs like baseball players do. Um, so elders, we can talk about that at the next meeting. But in my study this week, I actually came to see these verses right here, 10 through 20, as a, a rousing battle cry, kind of like a, a hype song, I guess. Is that what kids are saying today? I'm out of touch. For faithful followers of Jesus Christ to stand, to stand with their mighty conqueror, in this world, to not only share in his victory, but to rest in that victory, no matter what they face. And so I hear this battle cry hitting our ears when we first see the authority of Jesus Christ as our king. We see him as our king. We see his sovereign kingship a couple of times. You see it first, look in verse 13. He declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These words were first seen. They were first seen back in chapter 1, verse 8. And they are a reminder that as God, Jesus rules over all of history from beginning to end. And since the book of Revelation shows the judgments of God against evil until the king returns, the king has the right to tell John how to handle the message of the book, which is exactly what he does in verses 10 and 11. Look, he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Don't hide this away. Let it be known, he says. And then comes verse 11, right? Verse 11, you just shake your head like, what? What's happening here? Is Jesus commanding evil and filth to be done? He is. This is interesting. It's caused a lot of difficulty, and I'm just going to quote to you from commentator Richard Phillips because he explains it well. Let me, let, me, let me share with you what he says. He says, 
Jesus is here commanding that ungodliness be seen for what it is, right? And that ungodliness be seen for what it is. One of the emphases of Revelation is that Christ will confront and judge evil throughout this age and especially at the end. So here he commands that evil doing be seen as evil and moral corruption be displayed as the filth that it is. And so Dr. Phillips continues, is this not happening in Western society today? Despite the propaganda that promotes sexual perversity, celebrates greed, and masks a culture of death, despite the clever denials and deceptions, wickedness is nonetheless revealed by its effects. And then he closes by saying, in this way, the sovereign king exposes the evil of both sinful deeds and sinful character, but... The righteous deeds will be seen as being right, and Christ's holy people will be revealed as holy. This is the command of the sovereign king at the very end of his word. You see, as subjects of King Jesus, of the sovereign king, it's our call to shine his light upon the world. And we want that light to attract, right, and for people to come to know. But one thing that it does is it exposes evil and it exposes sinfulness, right? And it magnifies and glorifies the righteousness of God as well. And that's what Jesus is saying to do, to shine the light. And by doing so, we're standing up for the king and we're standing with the king when we do it. Well, this battle cry also comes to our ears when secondly, we see the authority of Jesus as the judge. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then look at verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away, God will take away his share. I mean, it's hard for us sitting here, what is it like 1900 plus years, right? It's hard for us sitting here and we hear these words, I'm coming soon. I almost feel like I'm at home and I call upstairs to one of my children, hey, come downstairs. And you hear, be right there. Never happens in our house, by the way, right? Uh Uh-huh, I see. Never happens in your house either, does it? I see dads wrapping their arms around their kids, yeah. You hear this and you're like, huh. In God's economy, soon doesn't work the way we want it to work. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.8? You can look, I'll quote it for you. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Like, okay, thanks for that, Peter. (laughs) Helpful. You know, the view of the apostles throughout the entire New Testament is that we live in the last days. We live in the last days. Soon is soon. The answer is yes. 
And that's to cultivate that eagerness in our hearts, that eager anticipation. Christ is coming soon. He comes like a thief in the night. You can't know, but we're to be ready and we're to be watching and waiting. We are to be good stewards. I know it's not always comforting, but it's not for us to dispute. Instead, our call throughout all the scriptures to be faithful. Christ is returning, and he's returning soon. And I think the focus of this passage is for us to see what comes upon his return. What happens upon his return? The second death. Remember, we just covered that a few sermons ago. The second death that faces those apart from grace is truly terrifying. His recompense is real. Those who are not in Christ, remember the books that will be opened up, they'll be judged according to their deeds. You don't want to be judged according to your deeds. You don't want to be judged according to your deeds because you will be judged justly and the wages of sin is death. But don't miss the truth that in another sense, though, He won't return bodily until the final day. His judgments are executed consistently over time until then. We've seen that throughout the book. That's partly what's behind verses 18 and 19. There's this prophetic warning that that actually matches Deuteronomy 4 in some sense. I think John might actually see himself as a little bit of a modern-day Moses, right, as as Israel's about ready to cross over the Jordan to go into the promised land. I think John sees the church ready to pass into the new age with him as the last apostle, ready to die, going ahead. I think he sees, like, we can't add or take away from God's word. You can't add or take away from God's word. I think Jesus is, is instructing him of this. He sees the importance of this. He's reminding them, you can't take away from this. This is the truth of the word. Jesus is telling him, this is the truth of the word. John is taking it seriously. We're to take it seriously. This is true. The judgments are real. Throughout this book, we've seen God's rescuing judgments poured out on Satan and his beasts in order to preserve the church and to save his elect until that last day. What we've seen throughout the book is that evil cannot and it will not win. And anyone who tries to obscure that truth, the reality of the absolute authority and the truth of Jesus's place as the judge of history, if anyone tries to obscure that truth, it will reveal that they're probably not inside the true faith anyway. John is very concerned, Jesus is very concerned with false teaching in the church. And there are many who were, who have, and who still are trying to unseat the king from his rightful authority in the church. And anyone who does so may not be truly in the faith. So this is a warning a warning to unbelievers, a warning to those who say they're believers and not, but also a comfort to believers. So don't get stuck on when soon is. Don't get stuck on these things. Rather, take heart, be encouraged. Take seriously the truth that he's coming. Take his words seriously. Take seriously that Jesus is the judge and that he's going to judge when he comes And maybe, just maybe, ask yourself this question. What will the judge's verdict be for me? 
What will the judge's verdict be for me? And that question brings us to the third and the final way we hear the battle cry for the authority of Jesus in this passage. It comes to our ear when we see him as Savior. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's very fitting that the atonement comes front and center at the end of the book. At the end of the book, atonement comes front and center because it's front and center to the entire Christian faith. It's actually front and center to the entire Bible. For what is our only hope of escaping the judgment that is to come? Both the judgments of our king against sin now and against sin on the last day, whether at our death or on the very last day. What's our only hope? What is your only hope against the judgment against sin? Is it not the cross of Jesus Christ? Is that not our only hope? Is that not our only escape from judgment? The cross where Jesus himself went freely and willingly to shed his blood for our sins, where he went to take upon himself the penalty of death that we deserve, where he went so that we could be set free, free from judgment, free from condemnation, to have our conscience set free so that each and every day and on the day that we die and even on the day of the great judgment, We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will always intercede for us. That on that day of judgment, when those books are brought out and your book is opened, that your book won't have anything written in it. That the blood of Jesus will have wiped it all away. It'll be clean. Do you realize what we did before the sermon? I mean, we almost had a a revival breakout in here. I was waiting for people to start clapping, right? Standing up. We sang a song that they tell you not to sing anymore. Did you know that? Oh, you shouldn't sing. There's a fountain filled with blood. You might scare people off. That sounds weird. Fountains filled with blood. The visitors may not come back. Well, I'm sorry if you're visiting and you heard us sing, there's a fountain filled with blood. We sing that song because that's exactly what it means in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. It sounds strange to our modern ears, but those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, unless there is shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. It's been that way all along. Throughout all of redemptive history, it's been by the shedding of blood. It's not by the shedding of the blood of animals anymore because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world went to the cross and he died to take away our sins, and he did it by shedding his blood. And unless we're washed and made clean by the shedding of his blood, we cannot have our sins forgiven. And so, yes, we've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. And so we sing that song, and yes, maybe, just maybe, we stand up and clap. And we shout 
and we sing to God. So let it be known this morning. Let it be known this morning that those who have had their robes washed will be granted entrance into the eternal kingdom, but those who don't will remain outside. Those who don't will be outside the camp. This is covenant language right here. I know it says dogs, and that's not very nice. But that's covenant language. Go back and read the book of Leviticus. You'll see it there. The sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, all those who are sinners, not washed in the blood of the Lamb, will not be admitted. They will succumb to the second death and spend eternity in hell. That's the truth. So let it be known this morning that Jesus is the only way. He is the only way to enter into heaven. Those are not my words. Those are his words. He said so in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Those are his words, not mine. Look at verse 17. Even at the very end, he's still inviting. Scholars like to debate who's talking here. I think this is Jesus saying this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Even at the very end, Jesus himself, the judge, is saying, come unto me. Come unto me and be saved. Only Jesus can save you from the wrath that is to come. Only he possesses the absolute authority to save you from your sin. So I invite you this morning, if you have not done that, confess your sin unto the Lord. Repent and be saved this very day. May today be a day of salvation for you. And if you are walking with Christ, may you join this chorus as you see it here over And over and over again, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord and King, come, Lord and Judge, come, Lord and Savior, come. I joked with the elders this week that they're all going to have to stand behind me and catch me when we were done. It's been an arduous journey, but it's been wonderful. Timely in the days that we faced, because the book of Revelation has reminded us of something very key that I didn't plan for. It's reminded us that as followers of Jesus, we're in a battle. We're in a battle. We're in a fight. And our fight is not against flesh and blood, even though we tend to think that, don't we? Because we fight and argue with each other so much. But our battle's with the forces of evil in this age. Remember what we've learned. Satan And his two beasts, the evil, oppressive governments and kingdoms, along with false, seductive religions, they're accompanied by Babylon, the pervasive worldly systems of sinful sinful immorality and idolatry. Remember, they all come together to form that counterfeit trinity and its church that works to draw people, Christians included, away from the worship of the one true triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, Jerusalem, the bride, the church. From the Apostle John's day all the way to our own, this battle has been and will remain the same. I wrote here a battle between the unauthoritative, evil, counterfeit, worldly way of the age against the absolutely authoritative, holy, authentic, heavenly way of the kingdom. These two ways 
the way of the world and the way of the kingdom, the way of Satan and the way of God are colliding all the time. They always have been and they always will until the last day, right before our eyes. It happened publicly with Baronel Stutzman, whom I shared about in the beginning. And it's happening more and more every day to people like you and me as more and more people are seduced by the counterfeit way of the world. And they begin to more and more openly hate and openly persecute not only the way of the kingdom, but those who hold to the way of the kingdom. So here I think is the final exclamation point on the book of Revelation. Stand firm. Stand firm. Hold on to the authoritative word and hold on to the authoritative Christ. Take heart. Take heart. Jesus truly has overcome the world. He has. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?